the heavy lifting is going to be in changing the makeup of that microbiome through diet and lifestyle interventions. You know, you and I were just talking about repairing intestinal permeability and some of the protocols we're using there. And so we want to really think about big picture. Welcome to the Healthy Skin Show with Jennifer Fugo, where we're flipping everything you've been told about your chronic skin issues upside down and connecting you with alternative solutions your dermatologist never told you about. Hey, welcome to episode number four of the Healthy Skin Show. Today, we are going to be covering topics such as why you become so itchy when you have some of these chronic skin conditions, what's causing that, things like histamine, you may have heard of it, but what are some of the underlying issues and what is something called mast cell activation and is that playing a role in your symptoms? Before we hit up our interview today, let's start with a listener's question. It's a good one. So what do you do if you've had eczema for quite a while, you've tried a bunch of different things and nothing seems to be working, right? You've tried the steroid creams, you've tried antibiotic creams, they've given you maybe steroid injections or oral steroid pills. The doctor feels like they've tried everything and nothing is really working. And so the next line of defense that typically will be offered someone are what are considered biologic drugs. They kind of verge along the lines of what would be known as immunosuppressants, but they're slightly different. They focus on stopping a very specific pathway, an inflammatory pathway in your body that assuming that this particular drug would work for you would prevent your rashes from flaring, from existing, and hopefully get you to clear skin, though it does take quite a bit of time for that to happen. So you may have seen ads for this particular drug that we're going to talk about today. I see them on the TV quite frequently. And because I have Googled for a number of years now about eczema and continue to do so in researching information for the Healthy Skin Show and SkinTerrupt.com, I also see a heck of a lot of ads online now on various people's websites, on Facebook, etc., targeting me because I'm searching for specific words that the drug company is hoping to like catch me and have me ask the doctor about this drug. So let's hear from Barbara. It has been recommended that I be put on Dupixent, which is a once a month injection that reduces the inflammation inside your body and helps to reduce the symptoms of eczema. What is your take on this? Before I share my thoughts on Barbara's question, I want to remind you all that I'm not a doctor nor a medical practitioner. And so it's important for you to always consult and have a conversation with your medical professional of choice around questions like this, especially when it comes to medication that may require a lifelong commitment to it. There are certainly side effects that you should make yourself aware of and not assume that because they only affected a very small percentage of individuals that were involved in a study or a trial that that can't happen to you. Because those symptoms might not seem so bad and the risk may not seem so bad until it does possibly happen to you. And, and know, too, that cancer is a risk with a lot of these drugs that essentially interfere with biochemistry in the body 
especially when they're on the more like biologic or immunosuppressant spectrum. You want to educate yourself before you go down that route. Also, another piece to consider is the cost. These drugs are extremely expensive. Dupixent is, from my understanding and doing research on it in 2018, was going to cost around 35000 U.S. dollars a year, whereas other drugs like Humira cost closer to $50,000 per year. So the question you have to ask is what happens if your insurance decides to deny a claim or you change insurance and all of a sudden they don't cover it or you have a massive deductible that you have to meet. So consider the financial cost. But there's one other piece that you certainly should consider. I like to imagine the body as like this pot of water and when you are constantly exposed to something that triggers inflammation, the pot boils, right? And so when you take drugs that suppress inflammation, it's like putting a lid, a very tight lid on that pot. And for the period of time wherein you're taking that drug religiously as it's supposed to be taken, the symptoms seem to go away. There's no issues, right? Except the fact that your body is still reacting to things. You just don't know what. And it's masking whatever is causing the underlying inflammation. And inflammation will show up in a variety of different ways. In this particular instance, a lot of us are upset because it shows up on our skin. But it doesn't mean that that inflammation isn't going to show up in your heart or in your brain or in your endocrine system or just someplace else. And that is something that you should really ask your doctor about. What happens if you decide to go off of the medication? What happens to the inflammation or the inflammatory process that is being triggered? Could it end up causing problems down the road? If I were you, I would ask my doctor for very clear, straightforward answers. He's not going to be able to make you any promises. There's just no way because there's too many variables. People can react to any type of medication. And I have come across people who have reacted to things like Dupixent. So there is no guarantee that it will even work for you. But that said, you do want to make sure that you are comfortable with the decision of taking this for life because if you decide two years down the road that you would like to start investigating a root cause approach, you're going to have a very significant challenge in front of you because your body's biochemical process that helps demonstrate what is actually triggering inflammation is masked. In order to identify the root cause of what's triggering the inflammation, it's not always necessarily going to be clear. And even when your skin clears up, when you're on something like Dupixent, you have to stay on it for life. It's not something where you take it until your skin gets better and then you go off of it. Again, this is a lifelong commitment to a medication and you need to be comfortable with that. And don't forget that you can have reactions to any type of medication, including Dupixent. There is a great article on Skin Interrupt, which I'll link in the show notes that you can go check out. Again, it's important to educate yourself about everything, the ins and the outs of a drug that you're going to commit to for life before making that decision. 
I can't tell you whether to take that medication or not. The decision is ultimately up to you. And it's also not up to me to judge you for your decision. Each one of us is on our own journey to find our way back to healthier skin, to reduce the symptoms we are experiencing due to inflammation, and to find healthy balance in life. And so whatever your decision is must be rooted and reconciled with how you envision your healing process, your healing journey. For some, doing a lifelong medication in order to suppress inflammation conflicts with what they believe is the best way to address their health. For others, they want to get past the symptoms because they are suffering so much and they don't want to invest the time to figure out what is ultimately underlying all of the symptoms. Whatever your decision is, is okay. It just has to be okay with you. You are the only person that matters in that process. And you just want to go in with both eyes wide open. And don't forget, if you've got a burning question that you would love to have myself or even one of our guests answer, please head over to HealthySkinShow.com and we will make sure to include your question in an upcoming episode. All right. With that said, I think it's time. Let's dive into today's interview. It's a good one. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today, I have what I would consider a mentor, a teacher, as well as a really brilliant practitioner who not only sees patients, but she also teaches clinicians, which is really fascinating and and amazing at the same time. Her name is Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and she's completed a postdoctorate training in nutritional biochemistry and laboratory science under the direction of Richard Lord at Metametrics Laboratory. She authored and edited case studies in integrative and functional medicine and was a contributing author to laboratory evaluations for integrative and functional medicine. The Institute for Functional Medicine's textbook for functional medicine and co-authored the ebook The Methylation Diet and Lifestyle, which by the way guys is a very good ebook. <laughs> she has been published in numerous peer-reviewed journals, blogs and podcasts regularly for professionals and consumers at drcarafitzgerald.com. And she's also on faculty at the Institute for Functional Medicine and maintains a functional medicine practice in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Fitzgerald. I'm thrilled to be with you again, Jen. It's always great to see you. Likewise. Well, today I wanted to jump into this topic on people who have chronic hive type issues. So getting all these itchy bumps all over the place and they're taking Benadryl all the time. This can happen sometimes with people that seem to have eczema, for example, and other skin conditions. Sometimes I've even had clients who cannot figure out what they ate and they're going nuts. They think it's food related. They're not sure. They've had allergy tests. They just don't know what to do and they can't make it stop. So could you explain to us a little bit about what hives are and why they might be continuing to bother you, essentially. Right. So it's basically just a little swollen spot on the skin. There's a little bit of fluid accumulation in the skin, and, and it's caused by some type of an allergic reaction. And it's mediated by histamine. So people respond by taking Benadryl, which is the classic antihistamine. I guess the challenge with hives is, you know, what the heck caused this experience. I mean, it's just horrible. It can be very itchy. I mean, it 
I've had patients who've got total body hives and they're just covered and they're itchy and they can't sleep and, you know, they're uncomfortable. And if you can't pinpoint it, or if you don't get much relief from Benadryl, it's a disaster. So it's on the allergic continuum hives, the hive reaction is, and it's mediated by histamine. So, so let's talk about that because there are also non-allergic reasons that we could have high histamine. So that we're going to just talk about these two buckets and just make sure that I do, John. So allergic continuum is, you know, when there's a lot of immunological reactivity to antigens or compounds in the environment or in our diet. We have a lot of IgE, which is the immunoglobulin produced by B cells in the body that's responsible for that whole allergic cascade. So allergies are, you know, hay fever or reacting to other seasonal inhalants or dust mites, or, you know, we can be allergic to food, say peanut and have actual anaphylaxis, which, you know, is also similarly a swelling, you know, the tissue swells up in our tongue, in our throat, in our lips and elsewhere on the body. So it's almost like anaphylactic reaction is almost like a really severe case of hives kind of deeper, but in the face. And anyway, so that's the allergic that's the allergic hives presentation. And it's up to us to figure out, well, two things. One, we want to figure out what those triggers are. And then two, we want to blunt and balance the immune system so we stop having those reactions altogether. Is it food? Clearly, we're going to be asking that and looking carefully. If somebody comes to a functional medicine practice such as myself, or if they work with you, you can enact an elimination diet. Sometimes we do the st- our standard elimination diet pulls out the top best known problem foods like egg, dairy, soy, wheat, uh, nuts, fish, or shellfish. And so we pull out those top foods. And sometimes that's all we need to do to resolve somebody's hives. And it's one of those foods. And then when you reintroduce, you can figure out what food caused the hives. Or conversely, you could do a lab test to see what foods you're positive to. Hives can actually also be caused by certain environmental exposures or maybe compounds we're putting on the body. And we'll look at that as well. So what soaps might somebody be using or what kind of exposures might be present in their environment that could cause a reaction? And then we'll look at eliminating those as well. So what would be in that non-allergic bucket? And that's probably where part of this missing piece is too, when someone's going to a more traditional or conventional doctor, they're just kind of looking at, oh, you're sensitive to something in your immediate environment. That's really hard to pinpoint. Well, there's this sort of emerging condition. It's actually, you know, I think it's been around for a while. Actually, anything related to histamine seems to be on a rise. Like we know allergies are on on the rise and so forth. But there's a condition that a lot of us are gaining awareness of both clinically and, you know, regular people. And that's called mast cell activation. So mast cells are the big histamine releasers in the body. So mast cells are are clearly turned on in in allergic disease, but they're also turned on by non-allergic triggers. Mast cell activation can happen with disruption of the gastrointestinal tract. We can have higher histamine when we're unable to actually adequately break histamine down because we've had some gut damage. Mast cells, interestingly enough, can be activated in non... So classically, we think about mast cell activation with regard to allergies, but other immune conditions can be associated with mast cell activation. Autoimmune conditions might have some mast cell activation as a secondary problem. 
interestingly enough, there's research on Lyme disease, you know, as, as exposure to that Lyme bacteria is being able to turn on mast cell activation, interesting, being able to just cause this histamine dump and you can have classic allergies or potentially hives as a result of the Lyme exposure. So non-immunological hives can come from lots of gut damage, inability to actually adequately break down histamine. Immunological can happen from allergies, but then, you know, other non-allergic conditions that we think of might have mast cell activation as a component. So there's actually, there's an autoimmune disease that can result in chronic urticaria where there are autoantibodies produced towards the cells that generate histamine or turn on IgE response. So there's an autoimmune disease in and of itself that can result in hives. And that would be somebody who's got, you know, really a chronic hive presentation that hasn't been responsive at all. We might think about that. It's less common, but it's out there. So as I'm walking myself through the various triggers and the potential causes, there are really quite a few. Most commonly, though, we're looking at allergies and we're looking at something that has to be or some things that have to be figured out in the environment. And so for somebody, if they are in the category of mast cell activation, would something like a low histamine diet, because most of the time people's first steps are, well, what could I change in my diet? And They'll try things like a low histamine diet. I've had clients that have read about that and they want to give it a try. Is that something, if someone's in that category, would that be a helpful step? Potentially, potentially. A low histamine diet is probably going to be the best for someone who's got some gut disturbance, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, super common, IBS, which we see a lot as causing SIBO. You know, even some of the autoimmune, like inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, or ulcerative colitis, you know, might cause damage to the gastrointestinal tract where that, you know, precious enzyme diamine oxidase is actually not adequately produced. And diamine oxidase is how we break down histamine in our gut. So if there's chronic gut inflammation of whatever cause, we can damage the production of diamine oxidase. In fact, you know, really when we're thinking about people with intestinal permeability and, you know, any reason for gut damage, diamine oxidase may be in low supply. And therefore, when we eat histamine containing foods, we need to be able to break it down and we can't. And that can result in a hives presentation for some people, not all people. I was talking to a patient yesterday who has histamine intolerance and he presents with like hot flashes or red skin, but some people can actually show up with eczema or frank hives on their body. And so that would be a histamine intolerance, GI mediated, and a low histamine diet would for sure be beneficial while you're working on building gut health and restoring gut integrity so the body is able to make diamine oxidase again. Incidentally, our microbiome can support either inhibiting or breaking down our histamine exposure or actually promoting it. So a dysbiotic gut can be a problem in histamine intolerance. So even if you have enough diamine oxidase, are you actually overwhelming your ability to break it down by a really dysbiotic gut? So gut health is something that we would want to look at as well. And something that just came to mind as you said that is that certain probiotics, like some people go, oh, well, I'm going to take probiotics. I heard they're really good for my gut. But if you have this issue with histamine that you have, I guess the message here is you may need to be careful of what probiotic you buy 
At potentially, the you know, potentially the quantity of probiotic as compared to our two pounds of gut bugs is relatively small. So the heavy lifting is going to be in changing the makeup of that microbiome through diet and lifestyle interventions. You know, you and I were just talking about repairing intestinal permeability and some of the protocols we're using there. And so we want to really think about big picture. But, you know, we could be mindful around probiotics too. But the heavy lifting is going to be in that deeper work. So initially avoiding histamine foods while you heal and repair, and then doing a challenge and reintroduction process where you see if you've repaired enough where your body can then handle. A lifetime of histamine food exposures shouldn't be necessary. You should be able to turn that around. So for somebody who's dealing with this, like, you know, when you're in the middle, like literally in the middle of an itchy situation and you've got to go out or any number of things. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, I really would love to stop taking Benadryl. Is, are there any botanicals or anything that somebody could do to help lower the histamine load that might be potentially triggering this or blunting that reaction in some way? Yeah. So we have a pretty good arsenal of botanical antihistamines. And you know, again, it's it, you want to think about it twofold. So it's an inflammatory process. So you want to think about generally reducing inflammation in the body. If we're thinking about diet, as I know you do with your clients all the time, you want to lower sugar, you want to lower processed foods, you want to lower additives, you want to lower all that, you know, caca in our diet that could promote inflammation. You want to increase omega-3. So you want to do that really basic good balancing, increase, increase the antioxidants, increase flavonoid-rich foods, all our fruits and vegetables, and so on and so forth. So you want to do that also foundationally. And then above and beyond that, we can think about our antihistamine interventions. Of course, quercetin is a heavy lifter. I mean, I use that in my practice all of the time. With quercetin, you're not going to get a lot of benefit by just taking some quercetin as a one-off and expecting to see it act as a Benadryl does. You need to do a loading period with quercetin at an adequate therapeutic dose. In my practice, I go up to five grams or 5,000 milligrams for a short period of time to really get the histamine under control. And then you can drop back to a maintenance dose of maybe 500 to 1,000 milligrams. So quercetin is a really amazing nutrient. Luteolin is another potent antihistamine that I use in practice quite a bit. Interestingly, reishi, I actually just learned this, reishi mushrooms have a compound in them that have antihistamine properties. So it's a fat-soluble triterpenoid, it's called, that actually has some antihistamine properties. Yeah, it is really cool. So you might think about adding reishi or taking reishi mushroom extract as an antihistamine. Other interventions, I use boswellia quite a bit. So one of the other pathways that's impacted in this sort of heightened immune response or heightened allergic type response is called the leukotriene pathways or some of these leukotriene compounds can really promote the hive picture and, you know, myriad other things. So fatty acids there would be good. Omega-3s there will help blunt the production of leukotrienes. Also an herb called boswellia is really fabulous and may help with the hive presentation. So in the short term, people might need to lean on Benadryl while you're doing this work. But as soon as you start on a good supplement, a good antihistamine, you know, immune balancing supplement protocol, you know, and work on your diet, you'll be able to step away from relying on those medications. 
And just as I think this is a great last question, because it's always, I think it's an important thing. A lot of times people go to their dermatologist and the dermatologist won't run any labs, shockingly. So around a case where someone has a lot of histamine type issues, is there any particular labs that they maybe could ask their doctor to run? Well, histamine itself has a really, it's broken down in the body almost immediately. So it's, it's difficult to get an accurate histamine picture unless you get your blood drawn right at the time of an attack. So if your doctor were to measure histamine, you want to go there when you're actually really symptomatic. There's another compound that behaves similarly called tryptase, and sometimes we measure that. But again, it's really hard to see a positive. So, so you could ask for histamine, you could ask for tryptase, but they're not that great. Probably what I would do is do IgE and IgG testing on foods and inhalants, that can be really useful. So if you've got hives due to allergies, you can nail down what they are and you can start to build your protocol out around that. There are some really new next generation tests that we can consider, but I would go to your functional medicine provider for those. Actually, I did a a podcast recently on mast cell activation, and we'll be releasing that. So if you kind of stay tuned on my website, or if you get my newsletter and you grab it, you'll see mast cell activation coming down the pike soon. It's one of the most dense, scientifically dense podcasts ever. (laughs) But if you hang in there, we talk a lot about labs. Probably the rubber meets the road with seeing how you respond to these antihistamine approaches that we've talked about today. So it's really a clinical diagnosis with a clinical solution. Treating your gut, taking the botanical antihistamines, lowering overall inflammation and changing your diet. If you respond to those, you know, that's your diagnosis and your cure. Very cool. And I and you know, we know everybody who's listening to this that it's Sometimes one's journey is a bit longer and more complex than others. And this, as you can tell, there's a bunch of different avenues to go yes. down here. Yes. So if- sometimes we can just bang it out. We can treat hives really quickly and just turn it around. And other times, you know, we have to ask, is this autoimmune urticaria or is this urticaria is the medical term for hives? Or are we looking at urticaria triggered by exposure to Lyme disease? You know, and so sometimes we have to go a little bit deeper into our differential, into what we're thinking the cause is. Well, Dr. Kara, I so much appreciate your time and all of the knowledge and wisdom that you bring, not just to the patients out there, but also to the practitioners who want to learn and educate themselves so that we can help more people. And so I know that you've got number one, everybody listening. So if you're a practitioner, Dr. Fitzgerald has an amazing podcast, which I even listen to and learn a ton from. But as a patient, you can certainly tune in. It might be a little bit over your head at times, but that's okay. But she does have fantastic articles all over her website on a bunch of different topics that even I read and I will send to my (laughs) own clients. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) I know you get a lot. You know, we're inundated with stuff to read. So the fact that you actually pause and read mine is great. I do. And you can find her over at drkarafitzgerald.com. And she has a really great guide if you're interested in it. It's called the Healthy Skin Guide, which we'll put a link in the show notes as well as to all of her social media. And depending on when this is released, If that mast cell activation podcast is up, I'll put that link in the show notes as well to make it really easy for all of you to find it. Dr. Kara, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Jen. 
I really appreciate the time that Dr. Kara Fitzgerald took in joining us here on the Healthy Skin Show. I'm excited for our next episode. I look forward to seeing you there so that we continue on this journey of helping you rebuild healthy skin.